Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening. and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plane Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at planecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi Warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host Dave Homewood and we're back with Noel Cruz. Hi Noel. Hello Dave, it's been a while. It has been a while, it has been a while. And when we left you last time you were uh, just handed your posting notice, you were at Amberley and uh, your boss Jim Rowlands had, had uh, given you a posting notice to go to back to Williamtown. Yes, that's right. I was agitating for a fighter combat instructor's course. He wanted me to do a test pilot's course. At the time I reckoned that I'd made the right choice. Uh, in retrospect, I'm not sure. However, um, it turned out to be an interesting time because the posting advice also included the information that I had to be there ready to start in a week. Okay, and I had a wife, kid, rental house, the whole bit to move. Right. So there's mad, frantic uh, activity to get down there. In fact, my uh, my wife went and stayed with her mother for a while and a few things like just so I could start this course. Yeah. The course itself was extremely intense, and also it was a rather inter- unique course, as it turns out, because by this stage in the uh, the, uh, the scheme of things with the Air Force, the Mir- the, sorry, the Sabre as a frontline fighter was virtually phased out. Right. The Mirage had taken over. So uh, what, what year was this? 1968. Okay. Yeah, 1968, pretty sure. By then, both the squadrons up in Butterworth were Mirage equipped and also two of the squadrons in um, 
in uh, Williamtown Air Base, the main fighter base, were also Mirage equipped. I don't think there was any Sabres in fighter squadron use, but they were being used as an interim um, trainer, if you like, yeah. people coming up to, to go and fly the Sabre for a while first. Yeah. yeah. Maybe one, no, I'm sorry, I'm begging your pardon, no, one of them, 76 squadron still had Sabres, that's right, but they were the next one up for replacement. Within the next 12 months, there was not going to be any Sabres anyway. Yeah. And yet here I was going to become a Sabre fighter combat instructor, so right away, uh, when I got there and realised, oh, and all this had happened in the 12 months, so I'd sort of been away on the sidelines being a test pilot. Yep. And um, I'm thinking, golly, you know, what's going to happen after 12 months when there's no Sabres as frontline fighters? But the uh, the people who constructed the course already thought this through, and they decided this was going to be a, a, du a dual course. In a half of the guys, and there was six of us uh, Sabre pilots, and there were six Mirage pilots on the course. Okay. And they're going to cross-pollinate, if you like, the aim being that us six guys, when we graduated, when the Sabre was phased out, could move on and become Mirage uh, fighter combat instructors, even though at that point none of us ever flown a Mirage before. Right. It was an idea we didn't work, I must admit. None of us ever, ever actually got to fly the Mirage. <laughs> but in the ground school uh, part of this course, we uh, did a lot of Mirage-type work in terms of radars and electronic countermeasures. I remember sitting through courses on travelling way traveling wave gates and range gate stealers and things like that, all this modern ECM gear to do with air intercept radar and how you spoof it and all the rest of it. And I'd never even switched one on. <laughs> <laughs> and I still remember how a range gate stealer works, but I have no idea how to switch the unit on. <laughs> anyway, um, but the physical course itself was just like being on a fighter squadron, but more intense in that we had to be able to do everything that we should be able to do perfectly yep. so that we can impart it by example to the students and I say by example because I, I reiterate the Sabre had no two-seat variant the Mirage at least had two-seater yep. right? so you could have to go along with the pilot but the Sabre was no two-seater when I learned to, to fly you got in your foot you had a chase pilot for two flights and then of course later on you went up in the various uh, instructional scenarios of formations and there was usually two students and two instructors yep. and the instructional technique was to yell at the student over the radio, not that way, you know, be bugger the other way, and come back with a really serious debrief. So a lot of the, the instructional stuff that we did, apart from the standard little instructional technique course we had to do, a lot of it was involved in detailed pre-briefing of what he had to do, and then having a good memory as to what he did, and then come back and debrief afterwards as to why did you do that, but you right. couldn't actually be in the cockpit. And you had to be able to assess what the other guy was doing by remote control almost, by just viewing the outcome, okay? Yeah. Especially when it came to things like bombing. You uh, you flew a bombing pattern and the student would drop a bomb and would miss wildly. Right? Well, hey, you had to drop your bomb far more accurately so you had the, the authority of, of being better to actually say, well, that was pretty bad. Yeah. And But not just that, not just by missing, but where did he miss? Was it six o'clock, undershoot, overshoot, left, right, did he allow for the crosswind? And in the 30 or 40 seconds available as he's turning back to the downwind for the next pass, get on the radio and tell him how to make a site correction for the next one. Yeah. And then also make your own site correction if you didn't do so good. So it was very intense like this. And so we would act as, uh, within the course, two guys would act as students and two guys would act as instructors and the students would deliberately make mistakes because they always said it was deliberate, but sometimes I think they just made them. And you have to critique them. Yeah. So you have to be totally focused on your flying and someone else's flying at the same time. You almost have to be in their cockpit. And that was very, very challenging. And then, of course, we did a lot of dissimilar air combat work with the Mirage. Right? 
um, as to how to outmaneuver all that sort of stuff with their guys. And that was not so much from an instructional point of view. I think we just, uh, at that stage, they were still learning how to operate the Mirage as a, as a day fighter, if you like, and realizing that they couldn't. It wasn't that sort of an airplane. The Sabre could easily outmaneuver if you got involved in a low-speed turning, maneuvering fight. Okay. But how to employ the best tactics to outdo it. And I think there's a bit of tactics development going on even then, because uh, all of these guys were quite experienced. They come back from fighter squadrons, and they were putting their experience into developing new tactics. So there was another part of our course. But I do remember it was very intense. We had to do all this theory stuff. We had to be able to analyze the fall of a bomb and vectors and sort of things like that. It was just full on. Yeah. And somewhere in the middle of all of this, I had a second daughter appear on the scene and uh, had a rental property on the far side of town and not enough money to have two motor cars because my wife needed one to get around. So I hired, I hired and bought this 160cc Honda motorbike and rode it to work and back. Yeah. And I remember turning up at work one day after riding through the freezing cold and I had to, was the first person up to give a lecture and I couldn't because I was shivering so much I couldn't <laughs> talk. <laughs> that didn't go down too well with the hierarchy. Get here, get here early enough so you can warm up, Cruz. Yes, yes sir. <laughs> anyway, the course went on and we went through various phases, the air combat phase and all. The, the instructional technique was more a direction only, like analyzing some of the cockpits. So it wasn't the flying instructor type technique at all, which was interesting because as it turned out later, I was more of a flying instructor than, than an air combat instructor um, in these airplanes. Okay. Anyway, towards the end of the uh, the course, which was about a three, three and a half month course, I'm thinking now, three, maybe four months, I had a minor medical hang-up, which delayed my graduation to the point where the course ended. I finished all the theory, but there was probably four or five or six missions, flights that I hadn't done. So the course graduated, and theoretically I didn't graduate with them, um, but they awarded me the, the qualification, if you like, after another six months of work, because even though I, I theoretically hadn't graduated, here I was 90% trained in a, in a conversion unit that needed the staff. So they just ignored the lack of graduation and put me to work anyway. <laughs> and then in retrospect said, oh, well, yeah, there's your qualification. You, you must have been all right. <laughs> but I don't have my photo hanging on the wall, which really cheeses me off. Yeah. Because uh, part of this, this whole medical thing, which restricted me a little bit, um, held me back from uh, some of the jobs. And uh, the pilots who were arriving, because as soon as we the, all of us graduated, there was new students to be trained. Because at that stage, of course, they were expanding the, uh, the number of Mirage squadrons and so forth. Well, depending on the number of people in them. Yeah. And so we had a pretty full on time with students coming through from uh, the graduation out of the, the wings you know, the courses at West Australia coming over. And of course, they all flew vampires. Yeah. And our primary introductory training before going to Sabre was the vampire, because that was two-seater. Yeah. Yeah. This is where you taught them the physical, how to point the thing and all the rest of it before they got into the Sabre. So the first thing that happened to me is I got put back on the vampires. Oh no, in the world, not the bloody vampire again. <laughs> but this time I was in the instructor seat. And of course, n nowhere during the course have we ever done any vampire work. But now I'm sitting back in this vampire, which I only vaguely remembered how to fly, and teaching people how to drop bombs and shoot guns from it. <laughs> so I was, had to just learn a little bit quicker than the student, because most of the students coming through were already adept and they were pretty good at, you know, when you taught them. But it didn't take long though. And actually, I started, believe it or not, I actually started to enjoy it. Okay. I, uh, I discovered that I did enjoy teaching people techniques, 
uh, in the cockpit, and that flowed through into the later life, of course, as, as you know, I was a flying instructor for the rest of my life, one way or another. Yeah. And this was really fun flying instructor. It wasn't, you know, how to do circuits and landing. It was how to dive at a target and shoot the shit out of it, you know, that sort of stuff, <laughs> and how to drop bombs and fire rockets and all. And I actually had a ball. And I suppose I knocked up about another 100 or so hours on the vampire running these courses through, even though technically I was slightly restricted to begin with. Right. And there was a point where another guy who had been a fighter combat instructor in a previous life, if you like, had left the Air Force. He'd gone away to become a, a stockbroker. Okay, had a whole new career as a stockbroker. Well, it turned out he was a lousy stockbroker and he rejoined the Air Force. <laughs> <laughs> sort of came back with his tail between his legs saying, uh, can, I, can I have a go again? So he turned up and he was also restricted because of a dental problem. So here the boss had two restricted pilots and these masses of students to push through. So this other guy and I put through an entire vampire weapons course and theoretically neither of us should have been anywhere near an airplane. <laughs> 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 and I had several... Uh, Several waves go through like that, and I actually didn't mind it at all. Then I got back into flying the Sabre for a while, and that was that was okay, but um, how can I put it? Whilst I enjoyed the aeroplane, the, the, the job of being the instructor in another aeroplane was actually quite simple, because the other guy was doing his thing. If he'd been trained properly in the Vampire, yeah. then he knew what to do. It was just a matter of getting a feel for this, this much hotter aeroplane yeah. to do it. In many ways, the side was easy to drop bombs and fire guns from. It was a more stable platform. Um, it was better fire control system. You could aim it better and all that sort of stuff. So really, all you do is sit there and say, that wasn't bad, yeah, do it again, sort of thing, yeah. from another aeroplane. Uh, as a chase pilot, uh, on, the, on the first few flights of these guys, I remember when I did mine, it was the same thing. The chase pilot would just sit behind you and make words of wisdom. Like, as I remember, I, I might have told you, you're passing 20,000 feet, the voice says, try a turn now. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> sort of thing. So it wasn't really flying instruction and it was hardly weapons instruction. It was just being there in case something went wrong. Correct. So whilst I did oh, another six months of work with the Sabre doing that, it was actually a bit boring. Uh, but I was also hopping back and forth between the Sabre and the Vampire and the Vampire was actually more fun. Correct. Unfortunately, the dear old Vampires were getting a bit old and a bit long in the tooth. <clears throat> And they would rattle and bang. The, the standing joke was when you rolled out to take off, the last pre-takeoff check was to yell out to the termites to link arms, here we go again. Because <laughs> <laughs> the vampire was a wooden fuselage, balsa wood and plywood, wooden fuselage. So all the termites would link arms and hold together for another flight. And we used to have, uh, the vampire had four 20 millimeter guns, but only two of them were ever mounted because four was just a bit cramped to work on. We needed two to, you know, for training purposes. Yeah. So the other two holes in the front were covered with a strip of fabric to blank them off to stop okay. the whistling noise. Yeah. And the strips of fabric would regularly just rip off in the, in the slipstream and there's almighty bang, flap, 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 rip. <laughs> <laughs> and so this aeroplane felt like it was falling apart half the time you flew it. <laughs> and just skipping ahead a little bit, when we finally phased them out, um, I flew one of the, the last ones down to Richmond Air Base to hand over to the Fireys. And I literally landed at Richmond Air Base and taxied it off the tarmac up onto the grass in front of the fire section, shut it down and walked away and never even looked back. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the firemen burned it or chopped it for fire practice, something yeah, like that. Yeah, you know, that was how old they were getting. <clears throat> I'm getting a bit ahead of myself because about 12 months into this, this whole thing, I've now been fully awarded my my qualification and 
the, the restriction placed on me had been lifted and then reimposed and then lifted again as one doctor or another changed their minds about what they reckon was even wrong with me, which was nothing as it turned out. But all of a sudden the change occurred. <coughs> the vampire had been phased out oh, six, eight months previously in the, tra- in the, in the pilot training courses to, for the Mackie. Right. The little Mackie, we had the, uh, <coughs> the 326H model, which is not as not the New Zealand one that people are familiar with, it was a much earlier model, yeah. which didn't have the stepped up rear seat. Uh, and the stepped up rear seat is an essential thing if the guy in the back is to see where you're going in a, in a Mackie. Yeah. Our one didn't have that. You just sat, or you could see out the front, and for a large filling of the field of view was the back of the ejection seat of the guy in front of you. And of course the question was meteorated, how are we going to teach people to dive bomb in this? <laughs> you, can't, you can't see squat out the front. Anyway, but uh, so these did, so the, the first thinking was, well, that had got to go back onto the vampire. So we had guys trained on this very modern, nifty little jet called the Mackie coming back, and we had to convert them back to the vampire. And of course, here I'm thinking, oh, this geriatric old vampire, and these kids would hop in and go, wow, this is a hot ship, isn't it? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? You know? <laughs> it can't be as good as, well, it turns out that actually the vampire was a hotter aircraft than, than the, the Mackie, okay. which was only a little airplane. We had a two and a half thousand pound thrust engine. The New Zealand one was a much better one. It was a more powerful, it had a later stepped up seats, which is what the Mackie had to become. Yeah. We made the mistake of buying it too soon, I think. Anyway, so we. These guys were converted back there. The first bunch, um, it was decided that um, we couldn't convert them because we weren't flying instructors. We were only fighter combat instructors, right? Right. So they sent a couple of, um, of hotshot flying instructors over from Pierce to convert people from the Mackie back to the Vampire. And one of those guys I met and has been a lifelong friend ever since, right? Because he's the best joke teller I've ever come across in my life. <laughs> uh, but he wasn't a fighter pilot, so the way he taught them to fly it was pretty... I'm going to put it without offending you, Don. A little bit boring. So, so then they said, right, they're now converted to vampire. Now you can teach them how to drop bombs. So the first thing we did for the next week or so was teach them how to fly the bloody thing properly, and then we got into doing all of this stuff. Yeah. The next lot that came over, they didn't bother doing that. They just let us teach them how to fly it from scratch. That was fine. Okay. And I think there was about two or three courses who were Mackie trained had to go back into the vampire. So not only were we teaching them how to operate as a weapon system but also just how to fly this geriatric old jet with all its idiosyncrasies and its incredibly old pommy safety systems and all that was fun and then the word came we are going to be re- equipped with the Mackie and that's where the question came up um, how do we do th- yeah. how do we use this it had no guns no bombs it had nothing it was just a, a light jet trainer yeah a light airplane with a jet engine oh we'll worry about that later but you've got to get them and I was the first guy to check out. I was sent down to, um, to sail to check out on the Mackie. And uh, the weather at East Sail in the middle of winter, as it turned out, is 8 8 clag from 10 feet to 10,000 or 20,000 feet. <laughs> so my first ever flying this thing was straight into the clouds, so most of it was instrument flying. But I actually rather liked it. It was a, it was a neat little airplane to fly. Very smooth on the controls, very nice to be harmonized do low-level aerobatics is really cool, just like a light aeroplane with a, with a jet engine. Yeah. And I loved it. It also had this wonderful thing called a horizontal situation indicator and tack and all this modern electronic age, which I'd never seen before. And I can remember um, the guy who checked me out. He said, looks like a dog's breakfast, doesn't it? I said, yeah. He said, it'd give you 10 minutes and you wonder how you'd ever live without it. And he was right. Yeah. Showed me how to work this thing, got airborne and started intercepting radials and things on this. And I thought, wow. That makes it all so much simpler. How do I live without this? 
And so we had the tack and displays and it had all the modern gear, which was, so it was a modern aeroplane. Even though it wasn't the most high performance aeroplane, it was modern. And I'm thinking, oh, this is good, I like this. Yeah. And, uh, and so we had these guys turn up over at, uh, I've been, got, I was down there for about a week and a half, I think, with the bad weather and all. Finally got fully checked out on this thing. Another guy went down shortly after. So within a, a month, there's two of us checked out on Mackie's front. And then we had another influx of uh, Mackie trained pilots arrive. Yeah. We only had two Mackies, none of which had any weapons of any sort, no gun sights, no way of going pop bang or anything. Yeah. So we weren't quite sure what to do with these two Mackies, which we then had, um, those sort of kitty cars. So we're still converting people back onto the vampire, but then we're also trying to work up how to use this. The one stage they invented this periscope system which went around the ejection and you peered through these little eyepieces like binoculars to see out the front through the windscreen and that was totally disorientating because you had no peripheral vision at all. Oh, terrible. Anyway, it all, it all fell into heat for a little while and it was my fault. <laughs> this is one of those telling parts of my Air Force career. It probably influenced the rest of my life actually. We uh, we had this whole course of guys turn up, six of them, I think. Anyway, we had a whole two Mackies. And even before they could start the vampire phase, they had to literally sit around for a couple of weeks because things got a little bit out of whack. They couldn't start them straight away. Yeah. And uh, the boss said to me, he said, well, you should just, these guys are qualified on Mackies, so why don't you just hop in the back seat and show them around <laughs> the local area sort of thing. Yeah. And up in uh, Amley, where I'd just come from, like 18 months previous now, uh, they just built a brand new offices mess up there, and it was called the Taj Mahal because it was so much better than all the old Nissan hut. It was just magnificent. It was like a palace. And I thought, right, show them around. We'll go up to Amley and we'll have lunch in the brand new Taj Mahal. (laughs) Fine. So two of these guys got in one jet, and I got in the other one. Our our whole two Mackies, and we took off. We headed up to Amley Air Base for... uh, for lunch, which we had very nicely, thank you. It was a slightly longer lunch, came out to fly back to Williamtown. And as we walked out of the mess, I looked over to the west and there's this big line of black clouds. Now I'd already had the forecast, we said there was a frontal system coming through. Yeah, so what frontal system, hey, we're fighter pilots, you know, and the, these, the, these kids have been instrument trained, good experience for them, you know? yep. good experience also it was. <laughs> But it was looking a bit blacker than the Met forecast had suggested. So I went down to the Met office and said, what's going on here? Oh, it's a pretty heavy one coming through. I said, thunderstorm cells? No, no, it doesn't look like thunderstorm cells. It's more just a, a solid wall of, of muck. Yeah. So I thought, well, that's okay then. You know, there's not wild you know, wing ripping off turbulence. We'll be cool. So we got in our little jets and we cranked them up, close formation, and headed southwest, straight at this line of cloud coming at us. And the closer we got, the taller looked and the blacker it was getting. And we were punching up somewhere through about 25,000 feet when we entered this. Right? Oh, I'll go, you can hear myself. Just prior to this, I was having misgivings. I got onto the, the, the radio to Brisbane Radar. And I said, hey, are you, are you painting any individual storm cells within this line of weather coming up? Because the radars even back then could see large lumps within the cloud. Yeah. And the, and the guy said, no, no, no individual storm cells. I'd asked the wrong question. I said, are you seeing individual storm cells? And he said, no, not individual. What are you seeing is one solid storm cell <laughs> from one horizon to the other. Oh, no. 
Anyway, and I didn't know this at the time, we entered this, this, this line of cloud in, in formation, we're, we're getting up towards about 28, 30,000 feet at this stage. It was quite smooth, so I thought, oh, this is cool, you know? And all of a sudden, all hell broke loose. Not turbulence-wise, just this noise. This roaring, crashing noise. It was akin to being in a railway tunnel when the train goes through. Wow. Right? To the point where just you're instinctively pulling your head into your collarbone. Right? And there was these white things whistling past the canopy and it was just crashing and banging. And it lasted for, oh, I don't know, it felt like 10 minutes, probably would be a minute. Yeah. And then it was gone. I looked out for a wingman. He, he broke off straight away. He lost contact. He broke away. Standard procedure and all. I couldn't say anything. It was just so, so sudden. And as soon as it ended, of course, you sort of look out. And the first thing I saw was the airplane's wings. And I thought, oh, God. It looked like a team of vandals with very large ball-peen hammers had got to the airplane. Wow. What we'd hit was hail. Not the normal small hail that falls at the bottom of clouds, but the large lumps that are thrown out the top. of th- We'd gone between two thunderstorm cells, all I can figure. So violent that they tossed the hail. These are half, half brick-sized hails. I've only experienced it once before. It was in Sydney when driving my car and I put the car back and the shovel was almost a write-off. The hail deaths were so big. Well, we hit these things doing at 240 knots. The leading edges were flattened. All the filters around the tip tanks were gone. The tip tanks themselves had blunt noses. I craned around to try and look at the tail. And much as I could see, that was the same. I'm thinking, oh, shit. (laughs) I called on the radio uh, to the other guy. I said, are you there? Yeah. (laughs) Are you all right? He said, you wouldn't want to see my aeroplane. I said, yeah, I think we've got the same. We hit the same thing. And about this stage, of course, the guy that's flying it in the front seat uh, said, uh, no, I, I don't have any airspeed indicator. So I thought, oh, okay, I seem to say, okay, taking over. So I, I grabbed the controls and uh, looked inside of my airspeed indicators because it was a, a combined airspeed and Mac meter, a modern system. Yeah. Mine's saying Mac 1.5. And I thought, Mackies can't go that fast. <laughs> <laughs> There's something wrong with mine too. So I had no problem, power and attitude. So I set 10 degrees nose up and full power. And that's about what you set in a Sabre, but not in a Mackie. The next thing I know, buffet, 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 stall, wing drop, oh shit. <laughs> I'm now semi out of control in the top of this thunderstorm about 30,000 feet. So I set two degrees nose up and I'm all right. And I'm, whilst I'm sitting there thinking, what now? You can't go back through it. The airplane was sort of controllable, just looked quite ugly out there. And all of a sudden, bam, we came out the back of this, this, this front line into 8 blue. Right. Oh. <laughs> Here we go. Now we can have a really careful look at the aeroplane. I'm thinking, <laughs> I think I should just continue west to Alice Springs. I cannot take this aeroplane home. <laughs> I mean, these are brand new aeroplanes. Yeah. At the time we landed back at Williamtown, they had a total between them of 68 hours since new. One, wow. had, one had 38 and one had 30 hours. Brand spanking new. They still have that wonderful new smell in the cockpit. Jeez. And I managed to trash the pair of them. Anyway, the other guy broke out too. And again, we had this wonderful thing called TACAN, which had an air-to-air function. If you switch to a certain channel, you've got a distance between, no bearing, but a distance. And we were using that, we, we found each other again. Okay. And looked each other over. And all I can remember thinking is, oh my God, oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> anyway, his airspeed indicators were working fine. Mine were totally trashed. I had these uh, electric heat heads, which were up in front of the front windscreen. And both of them were bent sideways. They yeah. had, had direct hits straight on and just bent these castings straight out of their mounts. Yeah. Anyway, so I said, right, well, I've got no airspeed, so you're leading, I'll land on your wing. Cool. And I remember we got into Williamtown. 8 blue sky from that point on. Beautiful weather, the rest of the rundown. 
landed on his wing, taxied in, and I can remember we taxied in, there was one or two guys there marshalling us. And this guy was marshalling, you could see the look on his face as we got closer, and he turns around and whistles the next thing, half a dozen people came. By the time we shut the engine down, there was a hundred people around the airplane. There had to be a hundred people just looking at it and saying, holy crap, what have you done? <laughs> the airplanes were written off on the spot. Jeez. I wrote them off. They were sent back to the factory to ostensibly re-skimmed. I think what they did is they pulled the engine instruments out and recycled them back in the assembly line. Those airplanes never reappeared again. <clears throat> then, of course, the boss calls me into his office and says, No. <laughs> again, the same boss that, that, that I had to sort of um, confess that we'd been down into Cambodia. <laughs> he, he was still my boss, or again, my boss. And he sort of called me in and said, No, what have you done this time? <laughs> experience. Bloody hell, he said, it was a good job he didn't know what to do with the damn airplanes anyway, is all he could say. <laughs> so I was under a bit of a cloud for their having, because I don't know what they cost in those days, $20 million each or something like that. Yeah. Wow. So I'm personally responsible for about $40 million worth of damage to two airplanes. So people ask me now, they have crashed an airplane. Well, no, not exactly. <laughs> they actually crashed one, demolished it in flight. <laughs> so, um, we continued on, we then, we got, we managed to get a couple more shortly thereafter, we were scheduled to have half a dozen of the things, so two more arrived a bit later on and I was told never to take them, you're a thunderstorm, you know, we started to fly them, just watch where you go, young cruise. Yeah. And uh, so I put through a bunch more courses and, uh, and we started to develop these sighting systems and so forth, none of which were really good and, and I, I, I couldn't work them properly. I, was, I remember sitting in the front seat with another guy in the back seat trying to work it and I'm trying to drop an accurate bomb so that he can see what it looks like through his periscope. And I couldn't even drop an accurate bomb from the front seat. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't the stable platform, um, uh, this thing. And the guys who were with me in this particular incident flying through the cloud, well, they went on, graduated fine. And one of them, the, the actual the, the pilot, the front seat, the captain, if you like, the front seat pilot of the other airplane was a guy named John Kindler. Okay. Pilot officer John Kindler. Years and years and years and years later, after I left the Air Force, I went back to a fighter pilot reunion, and there's Group Captain John Kindler, who's right. now the the boss of the entire fighter wing there, right? Yeah, right. Giving us a little burst, and I walked up to him afterwards and said, "Go, John, remember me?" And he just looked at me and said, "You're the bastard who tried to kill me." Of course, I remember you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sweet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he went on to to bigger and better things. They all retired. God, so long ago, it's hard to back all the pieces. Anyway, we, uh, so I had a bit of a mishmash of a, of a career at that stage. I had these doctors still saying, oh, we've got to restrict you here because we're not quite sure what the problem was. And I'm saying there's nothing wrong with me. And my boss knows nothing wrong with him, but he's a bit constrained. Of course, when this happened, and they're saying, well, who was, who made the decision about going to the crowd? And we said, oh, well, <clears throat> there was a, there was a guy in the back seat who were remain unnamed. The paperwork was glossed over because it was very embarrassing for him too, because technically I wasn't supposed to be the the captain of the whole operation because right. of this restriction I was under. So he was saying, oh, well, you know, the, the, the two guys were qualified maxi pilots, which they were, but they were sufficiently inexperienced to not realize the weather. And, and my name wasn't even mentioned on the paperwork. And I, I thank you, but I thought, yeah, the Air Force can really cover its tracks when they know what they need to. <laughs> Only 40 million bucks worth of airplanes are trying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we, uh, that, and this all spans a period of some two years from the time I first went and did the course and spent a lot of time there. So the, the most memorable part was actually, the, believe it or not, the vampire flying. Yeah. 
simply because of the uh, the weapons type stuff that we could do in it. And also, I then started to actually enjoy teaching people in the cockpit, you know, showing them little techniques. Yeah. Um, because it, you know, I, 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 I talked about this angle attack control technique, which the Sabre had taught me. And the Sabre having hydraulic controls meant that the pressure on the stick was the same as the position on the stick, right? Whereas in the Vampire, being just old-style manual controls, depending on how fast you're going, depends on what the actual pressure is, even if the stick position is the same. Yeah. So I used to play with this to see if the techniques still work, and it did, straight up. So I was teaching this to these kids, um, coming off pilot, and they'd not been taught it on their pilot's course, so they thought this was a magic breakthrough in terms of handling. So here's something that I was able, I discovered <clears throat> sometime after I'd converted the Sabre, but now I was able to teach it back to these guys on the Vampire before we even got into Sabres or Mirage. Right, right. And uh, I felt quite good about that because a lot of them sharpened up their flying as a result and certainly could handle the airplane beautifully. And I started to enjoy being a flying instructor. So I thought, where do I go from here? Maybe I should become a full-fledged flying instructor. So I actually, and the Sabre was now phased out. We had uh, we given most of the way to the Malays and the Singapore and, and, uh, and the Indonesians, and I think we had about ten or twenty left on the base, which were to be used as an interim aircraft. Now, people would come off the Mackie. Um, the theory was then they'd learn how to do their weapons training on the Mackie, and that wasn't happening, so they had to go back onto the Vampire, although they were about to be phased out and burned. Yeah. And then they go into the Sabre for 12 months to get used to the high-performance airplane, and then they'll do the Miros conversion. Yeah. Once they're at the Miros, it's easy, because there were two-seat Miros, so they could do the whole thing. You know. yeah. And the, so there's a whole mishmash, and I was bouncing around between these things and thinking, well, you know, what are my chances? Because by then, they'd already, already told us that despite the fact that we'd started out to be uh, cross-trained as Miros FCIs, that wasn't going to happen, because we were all too senior. Okay. And yet we'd be too junior in the aeroplane. So rank-wise, we'd be too senior. But in terms of just physical experience on this quite different style of aeroplane, we had no experience at all. So that was a bad idea, which never came. Yeah. <clears throat> so we all sort of were farmed out to different locations, some to ground jobs. And I'm thinking, oh, I want to be a flying instructor. So I put my hand up and applied for a flying instructor's job. And they said, no, you're even too senior for that now. Oh, bugger. Right. So finally, they said to me, you're going to be a transport pilot. <laughs> Karen Robin dog shit out of Hong Kong sort of thing. <laughs> but they gave me the choice they said okay um, you can become a C-130 driver or you can become a Caribou driver well my first reaction was oh, C-130 would be a better you know and then I thought about it I thought wait a minute you know, a crew of a million people I've been used to being my own boss now for nearly 10 years either as a single seat operator and a fighter with no one else on board, or even when I was flying the vampires, at least I was the boss. Yeah. yeah. I don't like the idea of going back and, because as a C-130, big four, four engines, you've got to spend a, a certain time as a co-pilot, and I was going to get captaincy straight away on one of those things. Yeah. And I thought, I don't like the sound of that. And then I analyzed a little bit what they did, and they, they were like airliners. They went from A to B to B to A, long haul, you know, Sydney, Darwin, Darwin, and just hauling stuff around major airfields. Yeah. And I looked at the caribou role, and that was far more interesting. Because we still had caribou at that stage, the Vietnam War was still going on. Yeah. Now caribou's up there, and talking to a few of the guys, I said, oh, that wonderful time up there, you know, these cricket pitches and all that sort of stuff. And they go all over the place, and I thought, that sounds like a lot more fun. Even though it's a fairly basic sort of an airplane, the role was more fun. So I said, caribou's. And the answer came back, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, I like caribou's. So 
I remember this is now getting towards the end of 1969. I remember that because in June 1969 was when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. I remember we're all in our, uh, we were going up, to, and I was flying sailors then, we were going at the stage. Yeah. We're all going out for a particular sortie and we sort of went on strike. And said to the boss, no, we're not going to the sortie because he's, he's about to step off the limb and so forth. So we well, just cancelled the flying. We all sat around the little black and white TV set and watched Neil Armstrong step off the moon. And right. uh, I must, I had thoughts along with everyone else saying, Geez, I would love to do that. I'd give a very dear part of my anatomy to do that, you know. You lucky bastard. Yeah. yeah, and so, and then as I say, they, at some point in the middle of all this, they split our, our unit because we had too many aeroplanes, we had mirrors, we had sabers, we had vampires, we had mackies, and there was too many staff, so they split it in two, and they had an operational conversion unit, which was mirrors, and the sabers and the vampires were the operational training unit, and all politics, rearranging the deck chairs as they, they threw the old ones overboard effectively, because, 12 months after I left, the Sabre was a non-event and the vampire was long gone. I flew one of the last ones. I think one of the last things I did was fly one down to the fiery. So yeah. they phased out my airplane and they phased me out completely. So they ended, if you like, my whole era yeah. uh, or that part, that, that era of my life. And so I went down to uh, the Ardent Left Base in Richmond to become a caribou pilot with, with some misgivings, I must say, about it. <laughs> and that kind of ends that part of my life. It's it's rather it's, it's not as focused as maybe some of the other talks I've given because it was I was all over the place in terms of what I was flying and, and when I could fly and, and all the rest of it. But the highlight was trashing two brand spanking new Mackies. You know, you call it up. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Thank you very much, Noel. Okay. <laughs> That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Hopewood.